Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month we've got a powerhouse. Howard Sherman is the director of the Arts Integrity Initiative at the New School for Drama. He is also the senior strategy director of the Alliance for Inclusion in the Arts in New York, which is dedicated to creating opportunities for artists of color and artists with disabilities in theater, film, and television. He was named one of the top 40 free speech defenders of 2014 by the National Coalition Against Censorship, and he received the Dramatist Legal Defense Fund 2015 Defender Award for his work on artist rights and theatrical censorship. To go on with this <laughs> incredibly impressive bio would take almost the entire show, but you can find out more about him at his website, hesherman.com. We're absolutely thrilled to have Howard on our podcast this month. I wanted to get into his work with the Arts Integrity Initiative at the New School for Drama, which focuses on creative and academic freedom in the arts. The very strength, or Achilles' heel if you want to look at it that way, of our business is the ability to be able to freely express what our hearts and our imaginations come up with. The Arts Integrity Initiative um, from the New School of Social Research. Um, I just want to read a, a, a short blurb here. When statistics prove inequity... Why do efforts to rebalance the scales get charged as discriminatory? The fact is, while there is more than enough evidence to demonstrate a tacit pattern of discrimination favoring white men in the theater, there is no explicit policy. But when there is a concerted, verifiable attempt to favor any subset of the population while excluding others in hiring, anti-discrimination policies and laws kick in. Okay, so it's all great when we've got white guys doing their gig, but as soon as we try and include anybody else, people start arguing. What's going on with this? And why is the Arts Integrity Initiative so critical? Well, I, I, there's already several questions in there. I think, you know, it's not a question of people necessarily start arguing. The The, the quote you're giving is from a piece that I wrote triggered by a situation in North Carolina where a group of theaters had agreed that any unfilled uh, slots in their 2017-2018 seasons they were going to fill with women um, was then determined, and peculiarly by anonymous people or actually pseudonymous people, people who, who would not reveal their identity, um, but they charged those theaters with being discriminatory towards men. And <clears throat> the fact is, when you put out information about hiring practice, which explicitly excludes any group, there are non-discrimination laws which have been created which do kick in. The issue is not that there cannot be these efforts. The issue is how do you frame these efforts in such a way that they are not running afoul of non-discrimination laws. And yes, it's true that if People simply say they're open to everyone and hire predominantly, overwhelmingly, or exclusively men. They're demonstrating a pattern of discrimination. They haven't said they're going into it planning to discriminate. So it's this fine line, and mm -hmm. for groups that are looking to deal with historic inequity, whether it is over gender 
whether it is over race and ethnicity, whether it is age, whether it is disability, they have to be aware of framing their goals in such a way that they are not specifically exclusionary, but that they are encouraging opportunities um, for underserved, upper, underrepresented communities in the theater. And frankly, in any aspect of employment, but, but I can only speak knowledgeably to, to what's going on in the theater or in the arts. True. And inclusion has been an, um, an issue for a number of years across the board. Um, trying to get, I guess, non-traditional uh, groups of folks involved in the theater has been difficult to best precisely because of what you're saying. How do we frame this? How do we talk about it? How do we actually open the doors deliberately to get more folks in there without traditionally excluding other folks? Well, and it's not just a case of opening the doors. It's a case of really really encouraging people to come in and making sure that we've removed barriers for people in those groups having the most positive effective fulfilling experience you know, you've, you've acknowledged my work with the arts integrity initiative mm -hmm. i'm also the interim director of the alliance for inclusion in the arts which was originally founded as the non-traditional casting project right. so so i i i sit or stand in these two worlds which often intersect and certainly it's not just enough to say hey come join us you have to actually go out and actively seek people because there's probably been a pattern of exclusion which over time has sent a very clear message to people, again, even if tacitly, that you are not necessarily welcome here. So now the question is, how do organizations that are historically mainstream, historically white, historically male really not just say they are there to represent everyone, but really take actions to prove that they, their commitment to doing so. And how has that been achieved? It depends on on the the location and and you know my writing, I have to admit, tends more to being when, it's not achieved, and part of it is calling attention to it. But uh, over the summer, there was a situation with um, uh, a semi-professional theater company in Iowa that was doing a production of Tribes, which is a play in which the main character is deaf, and they had not um, cast a deaf actor in the role, and most theaters that have done it have done, managed to do so. And as it turned out, they didn't really make a thorough effort in their community um, to find deaf actors, and their initial response was, well, we put up our audition notice, and nobody came. Um, that's, that's sort of the, the, the weak defense that, that we hear a lot. Um, what they had not done was really gone through their community and figured out 
where there are uh where the deaf community is in their area, how they tap into it, who has the expertise, because it's very likely that that people in the deaf community were simply not looking to those to their casting notices, thinking there was ever going to be an opportunity for them to blame it on the marginalized community for not being aware. Uh, of what was being done is is a narrow approach. Now, I have to say, uh, to this theater's credit, though there was certainly tension in the immediate wake of uh, activists and pieces being written about why this is problematic, the theater ultimately did postpone their production and said they will do the show at a point at which they can successfully um cast the role according to the way it's written and and the needs of the character the desire for there to be authentic casting in right. the relatively rare roles that portray disability if if actors with disabilities don't even get the opportunity to audition to play roles that are part of their lived experience i'm not saying guarantee the role even i'm just saying give them the chance to try. And in the case of a company that is not an equity company that does use people in the local community, it's not about going out and finding simply, you know, the finest actor you can hire. Right. It's about finding people in the community who can who can play that role. True. Um, and yes, you are right. There are relatively few roles for um, hearing impaired actors. I did a show a number of years ago called Mother Hicks, where there was a uh, hearing-impaired character. And the theater... Oh, can, I, can I correct you? I'm sorry. I tend to be a little bit of the language police because I've had to learn so much of this. Sure. The preferred terms are deaf or hard of hearing. Our need to allow communities to define how they wish to be discussed is important because otherwise it's about, it's about the names put on them external to their community. So absolutely fine. I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, I just, no, 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 no. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, yes. Uh, there was a deaf character. And I think one of the issues that the theater had much to its credit that it surmounted was finding a way to work with an actor whose disability would present a communicative challenge. They had to find somebody who, um, uh, was an ASL expert, Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, even though the actor that they did hire was an excellent lip reader, mm -hmm. right? It was still, I believe, sort of issue for the theater to say, how can we handle this correctly? How can we make this process as normalized as possible with someone with whom we are not every day used to communicating with? That was a terrible sentence, and I sound like Yoda. But, um, and to their credit, they surmounted that. We had a fantastic production. We had uh, a couple of ASL uh, signers come in um, to clear up any rough spots and to communicate to deaf people in the audience, of which there were more right, than because a few. it's 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 we we hear about sign interpreted performances so that deaf audiences can watch quote unquote hearing theater but but there's a greater dynamic at play when as you say an actor who is deaf is interacting with a cat with cast members who are deaf and then 
you know, additionally, how do you serve uh, the deaf community in terms of giving them the opportunity to experience the play? Mm-hmm. But but all credit to to the company for for doing that. It's you know, you, you said it's it's a problem to surmount. But I think one thing that's important to remember is that 26 years ago, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, uh, which in uh, employment situations, uh, certainly if an actor is being hired, um, calls for reasonable accommodations. And for someone who is deaf, the providing of sign language interpretation is a reasonable accommodation. Uh, I agree with you on that. Um, Let's talk about the Arts Integrity Initiative itself. Tell us about the genesis of it. Well, the genesis of of arts integrity is that um, I had been doing advocacy work for several years uh, after I left the American theater wing, though though some of the roots of what I was doing had actually started late in my tenure there. Um, I seemed to discover that that through my blogging and through my social media presence, I, I had a voice and I was increasingly drawn to issues that didn't necessarily rise to, uh, to the interest of the mainstream media. And certainly we've been watching an erosion of the mainstream media over, over the past five years or, you know, certainly since I left the wing, um, that that's what I want to clarify. You know, it was, it's certainly been happening before that. But as we see arts coverage reduced, as we see fewer people paid to write about the arts, um, issues like where I really started, schools where shows were being cut down or altered without permission in order to conform to some undefined set of community standards really seemed to me very unfair. Um, It's not to say that there aren't shows that simply are stopped because a teacher proposes it to the administration, the administration says, sorry, you can't do that. And to be clear, the administration has the right to do that. I always hope they won't apply it arbitrarily and that they will take the time to understand what the material is what the value in the material is for the students. But what really becomes more problematic is when a show is allowed to audition or even rehearse, and somewhere along the way, some complaint about it is lodged and the show is canceled. Um, And it seems very often that the complaints come from a very, very small uh, group of people, if not only one or two, uh, often people who don't actually know the material, but just sort of have heard that the material is problematic. And problematic itself is such a mushy word. What's problematic about it? Well, they've heard taboo subjects are present in the country. Well, no, it's taboo subjects, you know, taboo again. What what is taboo to one is not taboo to another. Exactly. And there's a tendency to want to 
infantilize uh, high school students, certainly, um, and to say that high school students aren't aware of drug use, aren't aware of sex outside of marriage, aren't aware of violence, um, is naive. And to say you cannot have any depiction of those things because you are somehow glorifying them seems, again, not to give kids or, frankly, any member of the audience um, uh, credit for understanding that portraying something is not endorsing something. And so when you get pieces like Rent, which has certainly yes. come up a few times, um, you know, Spring Awakening, now Spring Awakening, depending on how you stage it, can be tougher because certainly if you go to the original Broadway production, the, the sexuality was more explicit. And, and that's another key here, which is that sometimes people who have seen a production or they'll have seen a movie in which the show is or, or film is, is produced in a certain way. And there's the belief that that's how it must always be done. I've dealt a couple of times with actions against Sweeney Todd. Now, Sweeney Todd happens to be my favorite musical of all time. So I, I take Sweeney Todd pretty personally, but I also know Sweeney Todd inside and out. Right. And the fact is, is you can make the argument for Sweeney Todd as a moral tract, that while, yes, to a degree, you... Um, you may even empathize with Sweeney and with Mrs. Lovett, who are amoral, mm. murderous characters. Right. You know, and here's spoiler alert: tune out. You know, if you don't know Sweeney Todd at this point, but um, the fact is, at the end of Sweeney Todd, the only people left standing are the people who were not venal, corrupt, violent, etc. Right. It is. Grand Guignol in the sense of, yes, there are a number of killings, but it is not a show in which those who commit those acts are triumphant. More importantly, as most people who've heard of Sweeney Todd will know, it is about a barber who kills people in his barber chair and his landlady who then bakes them into meat pies. If you've seen the Tim Burton film, of Sweeney Todd, which is a pretty good film. I have not there's, seen that yet, but I'm, it's on my list. Okay, but there's one key thing. When Johnny Depp, as Sweeney Todd, draws his razor across people's throats, there are gouts of blood that pour out of them. It's a tribute to a particular type of horror films from the 1960s and early 70s, yes. made by the Hammer Company in England. The, it's, it's, it's particularly bloody. I remember them very well. <laughs> when, the, when the show is staged in high schools, I have seen it done where Sweeney merely pulls a string of red silk out of the collar mm -hmm. of the person who he supposedly just killed. I've seen it done with nothing more than a red spotlight and a blackout. There is a difference between a text and a production. There is no need to be graphic about the show when it's done in a high school context. 
people understand what's happened. But if people don't allow for the creativity of the dedicated teachers who are directing these shows to understand what is and isn't appropriate and to do the shows within those parameters, they're, they're simply taking away material for the sake of their own lack of knowledge of how theater is made or their own lack of imagination. Well, is it really about their own lack of how theater is made? Because I'm, I'm going to guess that a lot of the complaints are coming from concerned parents or you know, concerned uh, people in the community who are, who are looking at something like Sweeney Todd, which does feature multiple murder, bloody murder, and then cannibalism, oh, right? Um, mm-hmm. And normally when you hear these subjects, you think, well, I don't want little Jane or Johnny uh, being exposed to this sort of thing because it will, A, be promoting that sort of thing. Um, and I'm just wondering, how do we get across, uh, how much do we take into account people's lack of expertise, as you were just saying with the theater? It's, it's like trying to educate the general community into the techniques of how this is done. Like you said, we could do it in a benign way, we could do it in an extremely bloody way. I think it's important for professional theater as well as educational theater to put work in context so that people understand what they're coming to see. And and so I think how you frame Sweeney Todd, how you explain what Sweeney Todd is in terms of its story, in terms of its historical background, in terms of its moralistic overview, and most importantly, its place in the musical theater canon. Let's remember This is by Stephen Sondheim. It is one of his masterworks that there are kids who want to be challenged, teachers who believe their kids who are up to the challenge of work as complex and difficult to perform as Sweeney Todd, I think says a lot to what can and should be done. Now, one of the things... I hear coming out of schools, I've had this said to my face by administrators, we want our show to be something that can be seen by people age 8 to 80. I take exception with that. Uh, Yes, there are plenty of high school shows where if, if the kids in the show have younger brothers and sisters, it's great for them to come see what's in the show. And there may be some... Eight-year-olds or seven-year-olds who just, even with all the explaining of it to them, couldn't handle Sweeney Todd. But I know eight, seven-year-olds who would thrill to see Sweeney Todd. There's that too, but but it would be it would be you know willfully obtuse of me not to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Frankly, as a child who was easily frightened, and frankly had my own parents prepare me so carefully for the first time they took me to the theater because it was Fiddler on the Roof. I was scared of monsters and ghosts and they had heard about the Fruma Sarah sequence. And I was, I was so warned that it was pretend and it wasn't real and everything else. I got to that sequence. It's the only part of the show I remember seeing. I was about eight years old and I remember shrugging and thinking, okay, big deal. Um, But, but coming back to it, I sort of have concentric, circles of of who school theater is for, particularly high school theater. 
Um, and I think this is true in college theater to a large degree as well. First and foremost, school theater must be for the students themselves. It is about their experience, their learning, what they get out of it. Then, secondarily, it is for the other students within that school and what they experience and what they get out of it. Then it is for the parents and adult relatives who may enjoy seeing uh, their kids, their grandchildren, their nieces and nephews in a show. If the show does happen to be something that parents are comfortable taking younger children to, that's great. But if we decide that the educational process and school theater, whether it is curricular or extracurricular, is still part of an educational process. If we decide that an educational process for kids who are 15, 16, 17, and 18 must be dumbed down so that they can only do the most benign material possible, then we are doing a disservice to these kids. And I'll be the first to say, there are tons of kids who do high school theater and never do theater again in their lives. There's a small yeah. subset that may want to pursue it professionally. If you deny them the opportunity for the greatest challenges, then you are immediately setting them back in terms of their ability to compete when they go on to college. But let's also talk yeah. about all of those other kids who are never going to perform in theater again. That's our future audience. And as we talk about who's going to be the audience of the future, how is theater going to survive as increasingly complex electronic entertainments are so much easier to access and are you know, on demand. You can't start a play when you want to. You have to start a play when the play tells you it wants to. Right. If we've not given young people in their high school years the opportunity to understand that theater is a variety of work and not, not a singular type of experience, then we are undermining future audiences and therefore we are undermining the opportunities for the professional field and for the health of the art itself. Absolutely. We're definitely not being fair to the full spectrum of, of, of audience out there. Uh, um, two very quick things. Uh, you mentioned Sweeney Todd, one of the seminal theater experiences of my life. And I was the kid who went to see theater all by himself because none of my friends would even think about going. Right? Mm -hmm. I got a ticket to Sweeney Todd and I saw it with Angela Lansbury. Mm -hmm. And it was a performance that absolutely blew me away. I could never watch her in anything since without thinking of what she did as Mrs. Lovett on stage that night. It was indelible. You can still go watch Manchurian Candidate. They're sort oh, of a absolutely, piece. yes. <laughs> yes. I, I'm sorry. People wanted me to watch Murder, She Wrote later, and I was like, nah. That's a different story. <laughs> sorry. But the other one was... Um, a lot of the other shows that I had seen were pretty were pretty benign. You know, The Magic Show, Doug Henning, Grease, I saw it two or three times. And then I got a ticket to see Equus. And mm -hmm. um, I got, like, second or third row. And as soon as the horses came out, I knew I was in for a completely challenging, frightening... This is this was a theater that was horrific. This, this was a show that basically went in deep into the psyche and ripped out all the soft parts... Okay, and changed uh -huh. the way I thought about theater 
as not just entertainment, as not just a ride, you know, through the imagination, but as a reflection of uh, a, a reflection of of the, the religious beliefs we hold and the social beliefs that we hold. It was an intellectual and emotional challenge. And yeah, and frankly, that so much it was, you know, everybody was, benefits from being challenged. You know, I'll, I, I, I rarely delve into sports comparisons because um, because I'm not a sports buff. But, you know, if 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 you're if you're learning tennis and you're you're trying to get better at it, you you benefit from playing someone better than you. Yes. If you play somebody as at, at only exactly your level or beneath your level, you're not being challenged to do more. And theater has the opportunity mm-hmm. to create challenges. I'm not saying every time you go to the theater, it should be a workout. I think there's plenty of opportunity to just have a great, light, enjoyable evening. But again, we yes. need to show all audiences mm-hmm. all you know, the, op- the, the various things that theater can offer. I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation for an article I wrote for American Theater Magazine almost two years ago now, and this I, I absolutely know that this is underestimating. But somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million people see theater in high schools a year. That's students, parents, relatives, etc. That's more than see shows on Broadway and on national tours combined. That is a huge number. A huge so number. not yes. that I, you know, you know, we're 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 dwelling on um, the the school theater aspect of the work of arts integrity, and it really this is where it began. It's gotten broader, but but just. Think about the sheer numbers yes. of how many people high school theater may be the, their only experience with theater in their lives. And even if people choose not to go to theater as adults, we want adults at least respecting mm-hmm. the form rather than treating it as something that is distant or elitist or not really part of their lives or god forbid something disposable for everyone well yeah it's 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 what i call a non-quantifiable profession you can't put a you know a dollar amount on becoming an actor yeah but you can put a dollar amount on becoming an accountant yes but you can also put a dollar amount on the economic impact of theater of symphonies operas dance companies in communities and and people have done these analysis analyses and and there's no question that and in fact that that there's an economic impact when you have a, attractions of that kind within a community and more and more as people are looking to revitalize city centers arts organizations that draw people not just from the immediate neighborhood but from the surrounding communities yeah. are incredibly vital to um to healthy um economic balances within municipal centers. Do you think that ticket prices are a um, justified or unjustified, a, uh, a deterrent? Because people think, well, you know, I'm, maybe I'm working two jobs to keep things going or I don't have the money right now. I don't know how much tickets are going to be. Uh, you know, and they, they hear things of like, you know, Hamilton, 
where tickets are, you know, astronomical, $300 to just to just to even walk in the door, maybe. And they think, well, it might not be worth it. And that deters them. So the assignment of worth is is a value judgment um, when it comes to something like theater, because it's about an experience. It's not about owning a thing or a thing that is going to retain any value. It's entirely about how you perceive what you've done. Uh, yes, I think the cost of attending professional theater is very problematic. Um, however, it's justified, and I'm speaking both of the commercial theater and the not-for-profit theater. There are, there are certainly reasons it's structured that way. We can agree or disagree with them. What we have to remember is that's not the only theater we have in this country. Um, there's, there's, you know, yes, there are large not-for-profits, but there are small not-for-profits. There are community theaters that do good work and, in fact, have been in existence longer than the professional theater companies in their communities. There is college theater. There is high school theater. There's theater at every possible level. And, yes, right now America is highly focused on Hamilton. Yes, for a number of reasons. And we're going to see – uh, in, in about 18 months, we're going to see that same thing occur when Harry Potter and the Cursed Child comes to Broadway and presumably replicates exactly the kind of thing that it's doing over in England. There have always been major hit shows that are hard to get tickets for. I do think we've seen an escalation, particularly in the secondary market. And that escalation in what people will pay to to third party buyers has actually now reversed back and caused, in the case of Hamilton, caused the show itself to raise its prices because it was seeing other people make enormous profits off of its tickets while the artists who created the show and the producers and investors in the show were not realizing that. This comes into you know basic economic theory of supply mm. and demand. Right. But whether you see Hamilton in its first year or see Chicago on Broadway or on tour in its 20th year, there is a price scale. And as demand begins to wane, then there's more opportunity because there can be discounting. I'm talking within the commercial sphere where, you know, Jersey Boys looked, you know, at one point, Jersey Boys looked like it would run forever. Well, Jersey Boys is finally wrapping up. You couldn't get a ticket to Jersey Boys in its first couple of years. Right now, even although it's probably picking up now that it's closing, you know, Jersey Boys was not as hard to, to get to see. Right. You may not be in there when it is at its you know coolest to be able to say you saw it, but the point is you will ultimately be able to see it and presumably you're not going to have to pay dollars $500, $1,000 to do so. Um, you know, Hamilton is... A terrific show uh, by by all, almost all acclaim. Right. Um, would I personally choose to or be able to 
spend a thousand dollars to see Hamilton during Christmas week or New Year's week or Thanksgiving week when you know Hamilton grossed three point two five million dollars the week of Thanksgiving. That's I couldn't do it, and I wouldn't do it. Yeah. I, I, to me, the worth equation doesn't make sense. Right. And yes, I've seen it three times. So maybe that has nothing to do with it. But I simply can't afford a thousand dollars theater ticket. I can't afford five hundred dollars for. A well, I know people ticket. who can't afford thirty-six dollars a ticket, and that's just for a regional theater that produces, you know, some excellent productions. Okay. Um, right. But still, theater is more expensive. But as than we've movies. watched, as we've watched, movie ticket prices increase. Right. You know. Suddenly, the differential between movies and local theater, especially if they're discounting, that differential has closed a bit. So, so I think that's you know, it, I'm, not, I'm not saying yeah. theater isn't more expensive, but but it's it's it is a fact that theater is not because it's not electronic because you can't have 3200 mm-hmm. exact same productions of the same show playing all over the country at all different times um you know theater the the quote unquote inventory the number of seats available for any show the fact that the people in the show have to be paid at least the living wage yeah. um means that theater is always going to have a higher cost than going out and buying a video game or or signing up for a month of Netflix. Well, it's a completely but different economic model. I mean, every time it's a, theater, a different economic model, and it is fundamentally a different entertainment experience. Yeah, but everyone is an isolated incident. It's not like Warner Brothers puts out Harry Potter eight, okay, and it they, it goes out to you know thirty two hundred theaters across. Uh, you know the world, but it's the same product. It's the same. Yes, but remember, product. Harry Potter eight is going to be on stage. That's well, okay. Harry Potter. All right, <laughs> Just, exactly right. Harry Potter six. Let me go back. But it's, it's still, they make it once, they ship it out. Yeah. They, they pay for it, they ship it out, and it runs on its own steam. When you get something and, like, uh, you know, um, oh my god, boom or uh, the motherfucker with the hat, or something like that, okay? Every theater puts it on independently. That means the theater has to raise the funds to pay the right. actors. They have to raise the funds to build the set. It's design, It's doing the whole thing from scratch, and it necessarily costs more. Yeah. Right? So the ticket prices have to go up um, just to be able to keep the theater in the black, to keep butts in seats, and that yeah, has well, been... you need you need to pay the costs, and and the cost, you know, actors, their cost of living goes up with everybody else's. Exactly, and and so you know, not just actors, directors, designers, stagehands, etc. So yeah, um, so 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 these are important. So there, you know, coming coming back, there, there's no question. Price is an issue, a challenge, a problem, um, but. Uh, it's it's at this point when people start talking about this, I say, you know, it needs it needs greater minds than mine. And it needs it needs a broad coalition of people within the industry to to try to grapple with with this issue. Absolutely. I want to switch gears here for, for a moment. We were, we were, we're talking about uh, 
challenging content. And one of the things that I was I found in uh, doing my research was the 24-hour plays on Broadway, which were recently done back in November. And mm-hmm. one of the plays was Union Square Incident, which was up on the uh, Arts Integrity Initiative website. And reading through this play, I felt a chill go down my spine like I have rarely felt before. Um, this is Warren, uh, Warren Light's play uh, about several ordinary people being, oh, I don't know, escorted? Is, is that a good word, I guess? I don't know, maybe. Escorted. I would say detained. Detained. That's, that's an even better word. Uh, into a room with no explanation, their wallets, their cell phones. All right, taken away from them, no explanation, by an authority figure who is on the on the on the you know forefront, uh, affable. Okay, but you're not willing to you know accept a um, an argument about the situation, and these people have absolutely no idea what is going on. Why is this play so suddenly, frighteningly pertinent? Well, the play is suddenly frighteningly pertinent because it was written very rapidly, uh, as is part of the 24-hour plays process, um, uh, six days after the election. And while we don't know what these people have been detained for, we know that they have all been detained because they were in some way – either adjacent to or participating in some of the protests that had emerged in New York City following uh, the recent election uh, of people expressing dissatisfaction with the election results. Again, what they did, why they're there, we have no idea. But the prospect that, and it is, it, it, it's, it's Warren's invention that people were already being rounded up for some indeterminate uh, infraction that they didn't even understand what they'd done is certainly a view and a fear that some people have in relation to some of the statements that were made pre-election um, by uh, what is now the incoming administration. By virtue of the speed with which the play had to be written and had to be put together and had to be done, it was startlingly fresh. I mean, you may have read it in the past few days to have had the election on November 8th and to be sitting in a theater on November 14th watching uh, this story, which clearly at points um, uh, refers to to recent events, um, is chilling. It does, I, I will say, and I urge people to go to artsintegrity.org and look for Union Square Incident and read it. It's play runs 10 to 12 minutes. It's not a long read. Um, you know, it's one artist's response to what was going on that other artists joined him in presenting. And I should say, you know, it was really interesting. I mean, there's no there's no set determinant of what is written at the 24-hour plays, and there were six short plays written for the evening. Um, I would say you know, one one of them 
made a mild reference to, to the election. But five out of six, in one way or another, were all... Um, we're all making commentary on what had just happened in American society. Um, I, I asked Warren if he would consider allowing me to publish uh, Union Square Incident and Arts Integrity uh, over the other plays largely because I felt it was going to make the easiest read for people because there was nothing particularly theatrical or interpretive in it. It was exactly what you read on the page, mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can imagine. And uh, it's funny, I don't know Warren well, we mostly communicate on Twitter, um, but I just thought about it in terms of part of Arts Integrity's mission is to look at activism through the arts, the arts as a means of expressing social justice, and and the play just hit me as as something that might uh, might make sense there, and, and people have responded to it, remembering that it was seen at a one night benefit. Uh, normally, these plays are not seen again; they're not even necessarily collected or licensed. And at this point, I haven't looked in a few days. Certainly several multiples of people have read the play that had the opportunity to see it performed. So it was a case of, of, of giving it more of a chance to reach uh, an audience. Obviously, reading a play is not the same as seeing a play, but as somebody who read a lot of plays before I ever really started going to theater, um, I know that the experience is still valuable. It is indeed valuable. It reminded me of um, what happened not too long after... Uh... 9-11 in the, in the year following that when uh, many hundreds of American citizens of Arab descent were rounded up with no explanation whatsoever and, quote, detained. We heard about these detainments for a while and nothing mm -hmm. really happened about them. This is not an isolated incident in American culture by any means. It's happened many, many times uh, throughout our existence. But yet, to have it in the present, have a representation of it in the present, and not to have it as, oh, well, that's history, still seems to hit a, a nerve quite accurately. And I've always held the belief that theater is, and this is completely personal, um, probably the last bastion of complete truth that the arts might have, um, not the only one by any means, but I find that, especially with theater for social change and theater that deliberately uh, features, highlights aspects of our society that are not normally referred to, theater has that higher bar set for it. And Union Square Incident is one of those plays that definitely rings the alarm bell. Well, and I, I think the other thing that theater has is compared to many other art forms uh, in terms of certainly the performing arts. I don't want to talk about the fine arts, yeah. uh, as they're called, but um, the, the performing arts, you can make a play pretty fast now. I'm not saying it doesn't take time. It doesn't take expertise. The 24-hour play is a particular model, which is a 
particularly facilitates that. But movies take months, if not years, to make. Um, I suspect people... They may be able to write a short opera quickly or conceive a short dance as as uh, Union Square Incident was a short play. Again, and I keep referring to the other plays that addressed the issue as well through different prisms and different perspectives and styles that were also part of that evening. Um, but the idea of the live performing arts being able to respond quickly um, is relatively unique. It would, you know, somebody can write a short story, of course. They can't, you know, necessarily write a novel either. You, you mentioned uh, Wake of 9-11. I, I want to reference that for a different reason. Um, certainly one of the first pieces post 9-11 that directly spoke to the experience was a play called The Guys. Yes, I remember that one, Um, You know, which which was really done pretty rapidly and, and, you know, got out there. But there are many critics and cultural observers of theater who would say that everything that has been written by an American playwright in the past 15 years is a post 9-11 play. That was such a fundamental event in American life that no matter what it is, what it says, it is in a way a post 9-11 play because the way we live our lives have changed. There is the potential, whatever your beliefs, that this 2016 election was the next signal fundamental event in American life. And consequently, Mm. yes, we can talk about these immediate responses, but we're going to see certainly over the next few years and possibly for the next decade or more, um, we're going to be seeing post-2016 election players and, and work can be viewed through that prism. I've I've always been a historian. I love reading history. I I got a degree in teaching history, and one of the things about history is you watch change and change is more often than not gradual, and it moves from one stasis to another stasis over things happening over a period of time, and there are very few incidents which signal a complete change in a society. Nine eleven was one of those. As soon as the planes hit the towers. Everything changed in our society. We had a completely different mindset. We were totally turned around. Uh, the the election in twenty sixteen has to be the right. same thing. Has to be the same thing. It's an it's an abrupt, just complete turnaround. It's all of a sudden we're going someplace we never dreamed we'd have to go, and it's going to be extremely interesting to see the follow ups well, to you know, plays like the I, Square Incident. You know a place we'd never have to go. There is a segment of the American population that is very pleased with the results of the election. Oh, and is hoping tell me about it. It's yeah. taking, you know, but, but I think we have to acknowledge the reason the 2016 election is fair to compare with 9-11 is that 
it does affect everyone. Unlike 9-11, which brought everyone together and everybody agreed pretty much what they thought about the event, how they chose to respond to it and how they felt the government should respond to it was where the differences arose. Now we're looking at a different government, which is going to change everyone's lives. Some people may well approve of that. Other people are already very, very concerned about that. But it is it is broad enough that it is going to infiltrate every aspect of our lives, including what some people simply refer to as our entertainment. Entertainment does not always have to entertain in the sense of give you a jolly, happy, good time and walk smiling. So what it's going to mean how it's going to play out, how people look at it in six months versus how they look at it in a year or five years or even 10 years remains to be seen. Um, It's really just a case with the plays that were seen at the 24-hour plays that they were the very probably, as as I wrote about this, I said, with with the probable exception of stand-up and improv comedy, that may have occurred on that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, in the immediate wake of, of the election, uh, the 24 hour plays, um, this year, because it's what was on the minds of the playwrights who had been pre-selected weeks earlier, um, was, was among the first, uh, works of art, pieces of entertainment, what have you, um, to be able to respond. Yeah, it's going to be definitely interesting to see what happens over the next few years. One more quick change, very quick change, and then I'll get you out of here so you can enjoy what's left of your Sunday. Um, you're a photographer, or an iPhone photographer anyway, and you walk through Times Square. Uh, Times Square Weirdness is one of the features on your po- um, on your website, and I found it absolutely... Well, it's on my Facebook page. Facebook. It's actually... I, I, I did one collection on my website, but no, it's an amusement for fa- for people who are friends with me on Facebook. I loved it. I, I was walking, I was running across the pictures, and as somebody who used to live in New York City and carry a camera around and hang around 42nd Street, um, it was eminently hilarious. Um, so tell me about Mike Hot Pence and some of the other folks. Well, my, my, my newest discovery, I mean, I think people who've heard about Dive Square are aware that with the creation of the pedestrian plazas, we've seen an influx of people mostly wearing the costumes of cartoon and movie characters. Is the Naked Cowboy who, still out there? The Naked Cowboy, who was, you know, who was, who was ground zero of, of characters in Times Square, is absolutely still there. Oh, but, you know... And but but, you know, more we see people in, you know, ratty Elmo costumes or, you know, guys who are five foot five dressed as the Hulk Um, (laughs) for a lot of people. And because what they're doing is working for, quote unquote, tips, they want you to pose for pictures and then hand the money for the privilege of having posed with them. Uh, There are a lot of people who find this very troubling. There have been some ordinances passed in New York restricting uh, their movement so that they're just not, as I like to say, they're no longer free range um, when they're out there, but but they're there. And 
I, as somebody who works at 46th uh, and and Broadway and 7th Avenue, um, walk through this uh, experience almost daily. And uh, at times, I just find funny juxtapositions. And since now we all walk around with a camera in our pocket, mm. um, I've, I've attempted over time to capture some of the more absurd uh, things that I see. Uh, sometimes I have my quote-unquote real camera, I have a, a digital SLR, um, with me. And so sometimes the photos are of better quality or I can make posters out of them better than if they come off my iPhone. But yeah, yet just yesterday I, uh, I was doing a quick walkthrough cause weekends are usually, uh, the, the busiest times. And, uh, I was walking through and suddenly I spotted a guy who looked very much like Mike Pence, uh, and who was wearing uh, a button, uh, saying that he was Mike hot pants. And after realizing that, um, while he had on uh, a jacket shirt and tie, um, but was wearing nothing but a pair of fairly short blue shorts, uh, I saw where the name came from. And in point of fact, he was, he was passing a bucket in support of Planned Parenthood. Now I have to say, so I, and I did have my real camera with me and I snapped a bunch of pictures because this certainly fit with, with, an odd sight to see in Times Square. Um, and I have to admit, I was skeptical because, you know, somebody passing around a bucket just asking for your money in Times Square could be a complete con. You know, you don't know, you, you know, I didn't know whether whether this was real, but right. the image was interesting. So I posted it to my Facebook page uh, yesterday at about 6.30. And it's just one of those things where, you know, the, the likes and the shares just started coming fast and furious. And within about an hour and a half, uh, someone I know who works at a musical licensing house, um, who was actually in Texas at the time, wrote me and said, because I, I expressed a bit of skepticism in my caption for the photo. And he wrote me and said, I know this guy. He used to be my student. Uh, he's totally legit. And so with that, I asked if he could put me in touch with them. And Within fairly short order, I conducted uh, an email interview. Other people who knew him, because the guy is an actor, um, and among other things, um, completely vouched for him and what he was doing. And by 10.15 last night, I, I published on my, my personal site, hesherman.com, uh, the, the first interview with the man behind Mike Hot Pence. Uh, <laughs> as, as we talk, he's in Union Square. He's expanding his range, but he will be back in Times Square in a couple of hours. And now I sort of think I need to go back and just say, hey, hi, I'm Howard, you know, because the, the, the between the photo and, uh, and what's happened with my blog post, uh, I've certainly introduced him uh, in a meaningful way and confirmed his legitimacy for, at least so far, a few thousand people. Um, and uh, I love what he's doing. I love the idea that he's doing a form of street theater. He is using his resemblance uh, to the vice president-elect uh, to raise money for uh, causes that the incoming administration aren't necessarily supportive of. Um, Definitely and, not high on the priority list for sure. And consequently, you know, it, it sort of fits with 
my own advocacy, my writing about theater, and if it you know plays into my hobby of photography. You said I'm a photographer. Uh, I've I've only been paid for my photography a handful of times. It's really an avocation, but it's it's great fun. You don't you know, need once, to be paid to be a photographer. Well, I, I mean, I I actually have several relatives, some who have passed, others still with us, who who are photographers. They they are this is their career. So I make the distinction, but um, you know, there's something I've found um, about. When you walk around New York, and I don't just mean Times Square, and you look for images, which a camera forces you to do, unless all you're interested in is in taking pictures of the sights and of yourself in front of the sights, yeah. um, it's amazing what you can see. I, I, aside from the Times Square weirdness, which is a hashtag on Facebook, people can search that way. Um, it's extraordinary if you walk in certain neighborhoods and just lift your eyes up above street level. Because if you're at street level, you're going to see storefronts, you're going to see whatever is currently there. But you can look up and see things that are 100 years old and details that you just don't even think remain in Manhattan. Yeah. Uh, and and while the, the pace at which old Manhattan is being erased is is pretty rapid uh while it's still there i i love to say look up new york yeah there uh, are some beautiful beautiful so parts of of the architecture of new york that getting fewer and fewer every year which is sad to see yeah yeah well howard sherman thank you so much for spending a great amount of time with us on this beautiful sunday thank well, you well i appreciate it thanks for thanks for having me Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater that we haven't yet covered, oddly enough, or know someone in the theater world who'd make good chat, please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Our outro music is Surf Far, Surf Good by the composer Steve Channon. You can hear more of his work on SoundCloud. Onstage Offstage wishes to let its listeners know that we believe in and advocate for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace, without fear. We believe in zero tolerance for acts of hate and bigotry, we believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender orientation. On Stage, Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>